With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! to you by the dispatch and dispatch media go to the dispatch.com to uh find uh our free for all free to all uh web only ex- uh, material to sign up for newsletters to sign up and subscribe to or join the dispatch which would be awesome if everybody who listened to this podcast uh became a, a paid member uh we would be one of the great uh business success stories in the uh, media age, but uh, you know, no guilt or anything like that. I understand for sure that people during these times have like more important things like toilet paper or groceries uh, to pay for. So if you can do it, that would be great. If you can't totally understand uh, today's episode is brought to us by express VPN more about them in a little bit. Okay. So it's, it's, this is weird. This is just plain old weird. Um, my, a friend of mine offered us the use of a house down here in Florida, which is where I am right now. And um, uh, my daughter loves the beach. My wife likes the beach. I am somewhat ambivalent about the beach, but being on the water and being down here is better than being in D.C. So we brought the dogs and I am literally, not figuratively, like uh, four miles from uh my good friend and uh, the one of the very the, probably the most refined convert to the Florida man lifestyle in the history of this country. Uh, my former colleague Charlie Cook is down here, but we haven't actually met each other because of the damn pandemic. But we're going to probably remedy that. So we are doing this via remote, even though he's so close by. Charlie, welcome back to the remnant. Thank you. Just to be clear, we're we're going to remedy. Are not meeting. Not we're going to remedy the pandemic, right? I'm not sure I'm qualified. I for I for one am very disappointed that you're setting your ambitions so low. I, um, I mean, I don't think I could have a beer and remedy the pandemic. Um, well, we'll just well let's just say wait and see. But okay. yeah, we're going to get together for a drink, maybe a um, you know a, the third party who I'm friends with. Who I'm going to introduce you to smoke cigars so maybe there'll be some of that involved but in, there's now some very encouraging evidence about nicotine and uh and COVID-19 so you know it's a health thing but absolutely you, you do whatever you want to do okay I don't want to encourage people to be you know smoking if they don't believe in it so um so th- it is it is I will tell you I at driving around the we're on the outskirts of Jacksonville I don't know I, you know I'm, I'm in Ponte Vedra you're nearby I don't know I don't want to dox you or whatever, but um, I drive around 
And I'm like, so Charlie lives here, huh? About five times a day. <laughs> um, you still, you love it down here, right? I absolutely love it down here. I do. I've never regretted coming down here for a, a single moment. And is it because you're one of these pale pasty Brits who grew up imagining what sunlight was like and then you got here and you found out you were addicted to it? Because there's a lot of you in Santa Monica too, right? There's this weird culture in Santa Monica I've noticed of expat Brits who just sort of will never go back to Old Blighty or whatever because it's there's no sunshine there. Well, there are a lot of British people in Florida. It's one place that we come to escape the gray and the rain, although actually today we're not doing a great deal of that. Um, because it really is the closest, hot, fun, English-speaking place. I mean, when my parents were... I guess that's right. Yeah, when, when, when I was three or four, my parents went along to a travel agency and said, we'd like to go on vacation. Or actually, they'd have said holiday. And the travel agent said, well, where do you want to go? And because my mom speaks a bunch of language, they said, we don't really mind. And so they hit on Spain. And my dad, being my dad, said, well, okay, but do they have seatbelts in the cars? And, <laughs> and the travel agent said no. And uh, this was also true of France and Portugal. It wasn't uh, the law that you had to have seatbelts in, in the back of cars or even in the passenger seat in some cases in the 1980s. But it also wasn't customary to build cars with seatbelts in the back. And so <laughs> my dad said no. And then he said to them, well, where would you recommend? And they said, well, Florida, because uh, that is normal in America. Um <laughs> And so we started coming to Florida. And I mean, obviously, as you, your listeners know from the last one of these we did, I'm a big roller coaster guy. So that was part of it. But I like the weather. I really like palm trees. I like the fact that it's it's broad. I mean, the roads are big. The open spaces uh, are considerable. And, uh, and there's lots of other things I like about Florida, like there's no income tax and there's not a great deal of government and there's not very many laws and you can drive golf cart everywhere. Um, so one of my new complaints about Florida uh, is that now that I'm here with dogs, which is the first time I brought dogs to Florida, I, you know, I've been to every, I've been to all 50 States. And if you count the previous dog Cosmo, I've had dogs in probably 35 States, but I never brought them to Florida. And I am absolutely passionately, intensely terrified by all the weird, semi-swampy, semi-pond-like open bodies of water friggin' everywhere, like in office parks and mall areas. And you should be. I imagine con constantly that there's an alligator in there, there and is. that Pippa will get eaten. No, I, you, I'm, I'm not being funny. You should be nervous about that. If you go... Uh, to the front of my house and you look out, there's a sort of river area and uh, it's full of alligators. In fact, at the moment, there are two on the bank. My dog, Black Labrador, probably weighs 40 pounds, 50 pounds. Once, once went in there and I have never seen her jump out quicker. I don't know what she sensed in there. I don't know whether yeah. it was a snapping turtle or an alligator, but whatever it was, the reaction was instant. 
they're everywhere, Jonah. You should be nervous about this. This, this isn't some Floridian saying to the the, you know, the visitors, oh, yeah, they're everywhere. They really are. Yeah, no, I, I, I talked to an Uber driver here, long story there, but um, who was a pit bull rescue person. And she was like, yeah, no, you can't. Can't can't risk it. Can't risk it anywhere. And Pippa is just first of all, she sees any body of water and she immediately runs for it, like Odie from the Garfield comic strip. I mean, she's just this oblivious. Oh, water, yay! <laughs> and I have stress dreams in the middle of the night about Pippa going in and just seeing this churn turn pink as some alligator. Grabs well, now and, now imagine having a two year old and a four year old. No, I, I've told my daughter a million times your story about how you're you're. Your son, I guess when he was three, figured out that he can make you get out of the chair by telling you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a real thing. It's a real thing. Uh, it's, you know, it's funny when, when the hurricane uh, was, was barreling toward Florida last year, eventually we were subject to a mandatory evacuation order because we're so close to the beach and mm-hmm. we left and we were away for a week. Uh, and before we left, obviously, we put the hurricane shutters up everywhere. Uh, when we got back, just one week later, one week later, taking the hurricane shutters off, it was almost as if the whole place had gone to seed. Florida is so bursting with life. Yeah, Moving a shutter back, was it was like opening a Dawling Kindersley book. There were frogs, <laughs> there were birds, there were all sorts of bugs, small snakes. It was spiders. It was incredible. One week. It was almost as if we'd been gone for three years and we're exploring the parts of the house that were still standing. It's very different than England. Yeah, it's 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 why I can't live here. I'm a I'm anti critter. I I like cute furry critters that belong in the Shire and nowhere else. <laughs> <laughs> Cats, the red sized dogs. That's about it. Um, I'm not a fan of snakes. Not a fan of alligators. Clever bugs, not a fan. So anyway, um, <clears throat> but since you brought up <clears throat> little government here, I guess we should do some rank punditry. And, and, and one way to start is on the editor's podcast, uh, you've brought up s- several times how the way that um, uh, the governor here, DeSantis, is not the way he's portrayed in the national media is not the same as, as he's perceived down here um i know that you were bothered by the way he ran for governor um in ways that almost equaled my own dyspepsia about it but uh, how is he doing and how is florida doing just in general in terms of the response to covid well i'll start by saying the reason i i draw that distinction is that it it's one that shocked me you and i agreed that his campaign during the primary and then in the early stages of the gubernatorial election was grotesque. He was running to be governor of Florida, and all he talked about was Trump and national questions. And it culminated in that political commercial with his children in which he had them building walls and all sorts. Reading the art of the deal to them. Reading the art of the deal. Uh, I voted against him in the primary for that reason. And... Then during the the gubernatorial election, I was less than thrilled at the prospect of having to vote for him, although I was much more thrilled by him than by Andrew Gillum. Mm. Anyhow, he won, and it was almost as if 
like in some novel, some fairy had visited him in the middle of the night and said, could you stop all of that now? You're governor. You know, it was almost <laughs> as if what some people assumed would happen to Trump when he became president, <laughs> but didn't right. happen to Trump, <laughs> happened to Ron DeSantis. He, the next day, I believe, said that the first person he would have to the governor's mansion was Andrew Gillum, the candidate he defeated. Uh, he then prioritized the things that he'd run on. Imagine that. And he made a very interesting inaugural speech in which he combined his conservatism, which is considerable, with other initiatives that he believes are important. So you got tax cuts and Second Amendment and pro-life policy. Uh, you also got to focus on school choice, which is probably why he won the election, because he won 20% of African-American women, which is mm -hmm. unusual. Uh, and a lot of environmentalism. We have a, a number of problems down in Florida uh, with the red tide and also pollution in the Everglades that uh, are important to people. And then and invasive Burmese pythons, which I'm absolutely. not sure either. And yeah. then subsequently, he, uh, I'm less knowledgeable about this, but he's picked up Bernie Sanders' prescription drugs plan, essentially. I mean, he, he wants huh. to import prescription drugs from abroad where they are cheaper, especially Canada. So he's really not the guy that he was during the primary, and he's not the guy that he is still assumed to be, some sort of mindless MAGA drone. And until the coronavirus outbreak, at least, he had been rewarded for this because he was extremely popular. His approval rating was about 72%. He was winning half of Democrats. He was winning a majority of African-Americans, a majority of Hispanic voters. I think most of the criticisms that he's received for his coronavirus response have been silly. I think they've been silly because they were based on this misconception of who he is, or at least this memory of who he was during the primary. And I think they're also based on, I don't want to use this word in the way that it's used typically, but a certain bigotry, actually. I mean, we all joke about Florida, but it's really not full of dumb people running around setting fire to themselves. Uh, the pictures of the beaches that prompted such outrage in New York were either old or taken from odd angles or being used to sell a narrative. And it's based on a misunderstanding of how Florida works. The counties are very powerful in Florida. Mm. And the counties, by the time that Ron DeSantis issued his lockdown order, had already done it. Uh, we'd already been locked down for two weeks. All the restaurants around here had already been closed. Um, the beaches had already been closed. Uh, you know, when he when he said, "Well, we're locking Florida down," I thought, "Okay, as opposed to what?" So, I I think a a lot of it's been unfair, um, and it's also based on I think a perception of of Florida and much of the South that is is unfair. No, I think that. Anti-Southern anti, anti bigotry is definitely a thing, um, and I agree with you. And, and you know, is anti-Florida bigotry a thing? Yes. Is it, this, is it synonymous with anti-Southern? I'm not sure, because you guys really do punch above your weight in, like, non-Southern weird stories, right? I mean— Ah, uh, but there you, is a reason for that. You know this, right? Remind me what it is. Okay, so part of it is that Florida is a weird place, I will grant. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Most of it is that the sunshine laws that were passed in Florida 
under Jeb Bush are the most expansive in the country. If you go to the airport, when you leave, uh, if you pay electronically for your parking, you will get an email with your receipt, and underneath it will say, this is a matter of public record. All emails sent by the governor and by the legislature are public within an hour. You can log in and read them. <laughs> and this rule also applies to criminal justice. And so there is a little cottage industry of reporters who just sit around waiting for the police reports, which are published in full with photographs and details in a way that they aren't anywhere else. And so if somebody does something weird in Florida, you can find it out and write about it for clicks and entertainment in a way that you just can't do in Alabama or Michigan or Alaska or I don't Oregon. think I knew that. That's 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 actually really interesting. I mean, I still think if you had the same laws in all fifty that's states, true. Connecticut man stories would not be <laughs> on par with Florida man stories. Right. But I don't. You know, I don't need the traffic and all of that. Um, all right. So let's let's segue here. So uh, uh, the other night, um, Dennis Prager a man that I've always I've been friendly with for a very long time. And I got a lot of grief for criticizing something he tweeted, which I thought was, uh, I want to be diplomatic here. Totally ludicrous. Uh, he said that the lockdown was the greatest mistake in human history. Um, now feel free to, Take your have your own take on it. I mean, it's a little weird because I know largely because I listen to the editors what your take is on most of these things. But the part I'm actually interested in after you respond to that is I actually think it's a fascinating question. What is the greatest mistake in human history? Um, and given that you're an atheist and all sorts of other things, I'd be kind of curious for what your take is. But feel free to do the easy part first. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it it's not just not the greatest mistake in human history i don't think it was a mistake yeah i think we have to be careful not to extend it unnecessarily or to impose uh, impose a uniform rule i think we have to be careful also not to forget why we imposed it in the first place which was to stop our hospitals and other right. facilities being that is getting lost yeah yeah i don't think you can fight to the last man with with this but i mean it's, it's extremely silly thing to say and <laughs> and it does show that we're in an, a relatively peaceful and prosperous time doesn't it where people have forgotten what what happens yeah no it's sort of a i mean it's very suicide of the west compliant but it kind of reminds me years ago i wrote you know one of the first g files i remember like 20 over 20 years ago jesse jackson had said that the question of the lack of statehood for the district of Columbia was the most pressing civil rights issue of our time to which my response was, all right, so we fixed civil rights. There are no more real civil rights problems. If we're down to the high fruit of statehood for right. DC. Um, if, but anyway, I, you know, so I, I so I've been thinking about this a lot, sort of in a daydreamy kind of way, while avoiding alligators. Um, if 
it can't, a bunch of people on, on the Twitters were saying, um, you know, the things like the invention of weapons of mass destruction. And I don't think that works as a mistake because it's one of those things I had Matt Ridley on recently, um, you know, who points out that most inventions, when you actually go and look to see who really can claim credit, they're like a dozen people or 20 people or more, you know, light bulb radio turns out there are a lot of these ideas that were just sort of ripening. And then it's a race to see who can put together the bits at the last second. People have been making weapons since, you know, Cro-Magnons were the main threat. So the inevitable move to that, you can't say a mistake is, I don't, I don't think that works. Right. So uh, it needs to be something that was about a single person or a small group of people's human agency where they had a choice to do something or not do something that was contingent, right? So Napoleon's decision to invade Russia in winter, big mistake. Um, that wasn't inevitable. He didn't have to do it. A um, uh, friend of mine suggests that, uh, was it Charles V? You would know this. Should have taken out Luther at, at Worms or something like that? I mean, whatever you, wherever you come down on that, I'm not trying to piss off anybody, but you know, it's these discrete decisions. So what do you think were the, what, give me, it doesn't have to be the biggest mistake in human history. What's a contender. What would make it past the first seed, the first bracket? So just, just to clarify. So I have the question, right. It has to be a mistake rather than an act of evil. So the Holocaust doesn't count. Is that correct? Yeah. And also, is it a mistake from the perspective of the person doing it? Because it was an enormous mistake for Napoleon to invade Russia. But from my perspective as a Brit, it was salutary. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, so I guess if we're going to do this, um, it needs to have. So I don't think just because the Holocaust ruins all fun conversations, um, uh, it can be the Holocaust. But it can be, say, um uh, appointing Hitler chancellor, right? Or one of those kinds of things. Um, it can be something that led to the Holocaust, but, you know, the the, di- the deaths of all those Jews weren't a bug. They were a feature yeah, for sure. Hitler, sure. right? So that, I think your point about it being an act of evil is, is on point. Um, uh, anyway, I just think it's an interesting question. Well, I, and as a collective mistake that could have been avoided, it would be hard to top the First World War. And I think that yeah. is or does qualify for mistake. You know, with, I agree. With the, with the Second World War, it, you have to respond to a maniac and you can't really cast his actions as a mistake because they were a bug, a feature, not a bug too. With the First World War, there are a lot of mistakes made along. And, and and it wasn't just the mass scale of the death and then the Spanish flu. But it did destroy the world that existed before it in, in a yeah. way that few events have. Uh, that was not the intention. It was supposed to be over by Christmas. Nobody quite grasped, or at least nobody in a position of authority, quite grasped what would happen if you tried to fight pitched battles with modern weaponry. You can argue they should have seen it coming given what had happened in 1905 between the Japanese and the Russians and also in the American Civil War, but nobody saw that that coming. That, that I think, was was a mistake. And 
And I think you can cast it as a mistake also because with the Second World War, you know, I, I, I have never read any contemporary accounts of people in Britain, for example, or the United States after it was won saying, well, that was a huge mistake. Right, right, right. There are a lot of accounts of people in Germany, Austria, France, Britain after the First World War saying, that was an enormous mistake. We need to make sure it never happens again because it was pointless. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, defeating Hitler was, was not pointless. You know, <clears throat> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sympathetic to the argument that World War II really wasn't World War II. It was World War I Part II. Well, there you go. There's another part, yeah. Yeah, and so, um, you know, was was war going to come if Gavrilo Princip didn't shoot the Archduke? Possibly, but um, you know, just the, all the entangling alliances, all that nonsense. But that was a huge mistake, you know. And World War One was a dumb war, and um, and it also not to gild the lily, but. It gave us, it didn't give us Woodrow Wilson because he campaigned to keep us out of it, but it did give us his war socialism, which gave us the New Deal, which gave us all sorts of other problems. So, I mean, uh, that's a fair one. Well, that's and a arguably fair one. it gave us the Soviet Union. Absolutely. Yeah. That, so that was one of the ones I proposed on Twitter was sending Lenin back to Finland Station, right? Yeah. Was, that a, was that one of the greatest mistakes of the 20th century? That's an easier conversation, right? Because if you're doing biggest mistakes of the 20th century, it's either sending Lenin there or World War One. You know, you have to figure out what the human volition was that started World War One. And other than the assassination, it gets more and more difficult. But um, in human history, you know, there's this there's this really powerful tradition. Uh, what's this? Scott Atlas has that book out about this. You know, about basically how the agricultural revolution was a mistake. Um, and you know, I what's mean, the thesis. Well, so, I mean, you have to be, I'm not one uh, who argues that, uh, but if you're a Rousseauian, right, there's this idea that we lived better with more calories and more diverse diet prior to the agricultural revolution. I do think Uh, it is, uh, I am persuaded, it's, it's, it's basically the anthropological version of leading, leaving the Garden of Eden, right? Is that the agricultural revolution was the birth of knowledge and that gives us cities and politics. And before that, we were all noble savages. That said, I think the evidence is overwhelming that for a long time, the average human being who survived was worse off, worse off because of the agricultural revolution, because their diet got perversely got flatter and less diverse, and it allowed for things like slavery to come into being and, and, and all sorts of hierarchies to come into being. Um, so it was the agricultural revolution was great for elites for a couple thousand or 10,000 years, but the average person ended up living a day of backbreaking labor and quasi slavery because of it. So, I mean, I, I, I like the pro con argument, but at the end of the day, I really like air conditioning and we wouldn't have it without, without the agricultural revolution. So I celebrate our ancestors sacrifice. Yeah, I, I, I can entertain the argument as it is manifested in regret over backbreaking labor and slavery. I think any argument that presumes that we were noble savages and that we ruined that with modernity is ridiculous. I've, I've, just, I've, never, I've never found that remotely 
compelling in part because I believe that human nature is immutable. And so I don't, I, I think that whatever flaws we have in our politics or our economy or our interpersonal relations are the product of natural and permanent forces. I don't think they were invented. Right. No, I'm, I'm with you. It's sort of why we're conservatives. Um, all right. So, um, you are one of the great, uh, at NR at least, um, you are on the, um, fringe of anti FBI people, I would say. Is I that am. fair? That's yeah. absolutely fair. So are you relishing in a, at least a, I told you so way, the, the Flynn stories? What do you, what do you make of all of it? Well, I think it's complicated from what I can see. There's two parts to this. There is the FBI and the way it's behaved during the Trump administration. And then there is the FBI per se. And there's two parts to my objection to the FBI per se. The first is that I don't think it fits neatly into our constitutional structure. We have a constitution that creates a federal government which is supposed to do a number of things, but nothing else we did not grant the federal government police powers. Insofar as the federal government needs to be able to enforce its own laws, it will need employees to do that. But the FBI has become something a little bit more, both in practice and in theory, than a limited force that is there to back up federal law. We see it in some ways as the super police. And I don't mm. like that in the United States. I think that that is a dangerous development. The second reason I am habitually skeptical toward the FBI is that the FBI, as far as I know more than any other law enforcement agency in the country, is set up to get people on process crimes. And with a couple of exceptions, I don't like process crimes. If somebody has done something wrong, uh, especially if what they've done wrong is in and of itself evil, I have no problem prosecuting them and imprisoning them or whatever. But to entrap people is another question, and to try to get them to lie to you so that you can then imprison them or punish them for lying to you in the course of an investigation is something else. And there is just no question that the FBI does this as a matter of course. Mm. Now, on the question of Flynn, I don't think we quite know what the notes that have caused such consternation mean. The reflexively pro-Trump crowd have assumed that that handwritten note that asks, are we trying to prove wrongdoing or are we trying to get him to lie to us so that he'll have to resign or or so that mm -hmm. we can prosecute him was a was a question that assumed uh, well was nefarious in intent. Mm -hmm. uh, I've also seen it argued fairly persuasively that the opposite is the case that that this person was saying, "Hold on a minute, what are we trying to achieve here? It wouldn't be reasonable for us to try and take this guy down." I don't trust the FBI, so my first instinct was to be outraged, but I guess I'm going to wait and see what, what we learn about that. 
if it is the case that there was a genuine discussion as to how the FBI could get Flynn to be fired, that will be an outrage. And that should alarm people extremely deeply. It is one thing to believe that just as defense lawyers should, not just can, but should do anything to try to present the best argument for their client and get them off, a prosecutor should try anything he can in order to advance the ball against a target. It's another for the FBI, which is a creation of Congress, to be intervening in political questions such as which presidential appointees may stay there. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And, you know, I think it, I, I also agree that it's complicated because, you know, Flynn, who saw combat and has this, you know, is a, by any definition that I want to subscribe to, is a, a grown up pled guilty to something, you know, and, um, sure, this isn't the defense of Flynn. I'm not a, yeah. A and he also did Flynn. stuff in, with the Turks that I haven't seen him exonerated for anything like that. Let's just, if we just transfer this for a moment, because one of the problems we have when discussing our institutions, as you know all too well, is that everything is assumed to be a referendum on Trump or Trump's Mm -hmm. friends. Let's assume that we have a serial killer and that serial killer is African-American. And he ends up, admitting that he did it. But we subsequently find out that there were all sorts of shenanigans in the way that it was investigated. Evidence was fabricated. Uh, There was um, ill intent on the part of the prosecutor and the judge. We would still be bothered by that, I would hope. It wouldn't mean the guy was innocent. wouldn't mean the guy was worthy. wouldn't even mean the guy shouldn't go to jail or be punished. But we would still say, well, hold on, we we can't ignore the flaws in our system purely because the person in question is undesirable or ended up uh, pleading guilty or was proven to be guilty. And I think that the performance of the FBI over the last four years, irrespective of whether one has any sympathy for its targets, has been objectively disgraceful. And I think that some of the legal and cultural standards that we have begun to set up, because we are discussing Donald Trump or Flynn or any of the other clowns with which the president surrounds himself, uh, I think they're dangerous. Uh, and alarming, and I think they're going to come back to bite some of the people who've advanced them, who are supposed to be liberals. Yeah, so on this question of taking Trump out of it, I've agonized about this, and part of my problem is that I'm not smart enough to figure out how to do the actual institutional sociology that would make this possible. But as just a matter of logic, in your scenario where you have someone who is guilty but he's also been framed in effect, right? You know, you can frame a guilty man. You can right. manufacture evidence for a guilty man that you don't have. Uh, my sense is, is that of the wrongdoing by prosecutors and cops in America, a large percentage of the examples of them framing people are actually them framing 
unsavory, guilty people rather than right. just crazy, innocent people. Doesn't mean the other, the worst thing, which is framing an innocent person, doesn't happen too. I'm just saying most cops are planting a gun on a guy who, you know, when this kind of stuff happens, they're they're trying to make it easier to make sure a bad guy goes away, doesn't forgive it. My point is, is that I've always struggled with the idea that because the cops or the prosecution broke the rules, that that gives a guilty person a get-out-of-jail-free card. Have you? I would much rather see cops and prosecutors criminally penalized or prosecuted for breaking the rules rather than the reward going to someone who is, in fact, guilty. Well, I, I would certainly be open to that. The primary reason that I support the, as you put it, get-out-of-jail-free card is that I think there have to be consequences that dissuade the authorities from behaving in that manner. And your proposal would get around that. That said, I see this in a a, a, a Manichean way, I suppose. I am free until such time as, according to the rules that have been laid out, I can be demonstrated to have broken the law. And prosecuted accordingly and punished accordingly and in the cases or the hypothetical cases we're discussing that hasn't happened and i think that that much as you and i are both originalists and and legal textualists because we think i assume this is your position i've spoken to you about this before because we think that it is important not only for the original will of the people who pass a law to be preserved but for laymen to understand the laws they're bound by mm -hmm. i think it is important to ensure that whatever rules we set out for a prosecution for an evaluation of evidence are followed now that that's not of course an argument against reform but it is to say that the consequence of not following whatever laws you have set out should be that the person that you are trying to punish based upon the rules that you've set out is not punished. That, that would be my, my instinctive way of looking at it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think we're in the same place. I, I, as a conservative, I am perfectly content, happy is the wrong word, I'm perfectly content to concede that when running a, a complicated society and in complicated institutions that um, procedural considerations sometimes yield suboptimal results, but it's, it's the way you manage human nature in a complex system. And, you know, I'm not a big fan of like notions of procedural rights. I mean, I remember years ago, I remember Glenn Greenwald went back guano crazy about something I had written about how, if the technology in the minority report actually worked, was actually foolproof, and you could predict who was going to commit a crime, there'd be nothing wrong with using it to stop people from committing crimes. And um, I get why that like runs against, that's like petting the cat the wrong way in our culture to say something like that. It doesn't mean that you should get the same punishment that you would get if you actually committed the crime, but preventing Preventing someone's murder would be a good thing. And if you use psychics to do it, you held someone accountable for what they were going to do, it would be fine. But the reason I bring this up is that the reason why we have all of these protections in 
legal proceedings isn't to make it more difficult for criminals to get convicted. It's to make it more difficult to convict innocent people of crimes. Right. And if you didn't need to have those protections, which by as sort of emanations confer privileges and rights on guilty people that make it harder to do justice, you would have innocent people going to jail all the time. So it's like, I don't really, I don't love rights for guilty people. I just understand as a conservative, they are necessary for the proper, proper functioning of a justice system. Right. But I also think that the way that our system of government is set up and the presumptions that undergird our classical liberal order take you to accepting that the prerequisites to removing somebody's liberty have not been met, and therefore mm-hmm. that they can't have that liberty removed. I think that's why the benefit, if you like, accrues to the accused. I mean, it's just, no, that's fair. That's fair. That's and just fair. instinctively, yeah. this is a question that interests me. So, instinctively, does does what happened to Al Capone bother you? That they went with for tax fraud charges instead of murder charges? Yeah. Is, is the question because you think that if he hadn't committed all those murders, that they wouldn't have prosecuted him as vigorously for the tax infringement? I've said... For, I, because it matters, yeah, right? I mean, yeah. Well, I've said for a long time that, that um, the Al Capone incident instinctively bothers me for a couple of reasons. One is that they didn't have the evidence that they needed to get him on the things that he had actually done. Mm -hmm. So they tried to find something else, which he had done, but for which he was punished more severely than anyone had been around that time because they didn't have the evidence to get him on what they thought he had done, which he had. And, and most people respond to this by saying, well, the guy was a murderer. You've got to use the tools that you have. And I can respect that, and I certainly comprehend it. I also think that going after people for other crimes, you know, that you're substituting in for the real one, <laughs> leads yeah. to some fairly dark places. Well, all right, it, it can, but it's there's not. A, I mean, I'm a I'm a I'm a slippery slope skeptic. I'm not aware of the argument that says because of what we did to Al Capone. We then got more of a police state as a result, um, and I, I just—I I see your point. Um, I guess the problem is, and the problem is that neither of us apply to this. Is that there are an enormous number of people who manage to conjure real sympathy for Al Capone types, rather than yeah. But it's one thing see, to have, that's another reason it bothers me, Jonah, because it's not just people in the modern era looking back and conjuring sympathy for Al Capone types or romanticizing them in the way we do uh, in the movies. Al Capone was tolerated by the city of Chicago and the federal government up until the point at which he became a nuisance. He was known to be a murderer. He was known to be a bootlegger. He was known to be heavily involved in violent crime. Uh, And yet Chicago was quite happy to allow him to run around the city as a celebrity and to feed poor people, which he did. That doesn't make him a good person, but he fed enormous numbers of poor people uh, during the Depression with his ill-gotten gains. And they were happy with it. 
Chicago was fine with it. The federal government was fine with it. Then they decide, actually, he's pushed it too far. They can't get him on what they want to get him on, so they go after him on other grounds, the same grounds that they had tolerated and indulged when it suited them. I find the whole thing alarming. I have to be honest. No, I I get your point. I just, you know, Chicago was corrupt. The state of Illinois was corrupt. The federal government, because of this new thing, the FBI wanted to... Uh, needed to go over the heads of local officials who were probably covering for Capone, and they got him on tax evasion. I get the principle. I cannot, I cannot get too worked up about it. Sure. Um, but at the same time, look, I don't like things like double jeopardy. I don't like you know, like when the federal government want to go in and uh, in, in file cases about violating someone's civil rights when they get off on a state charge. Um, that stuff tends to bother me. I mean, it depends on the specific examples. Uh, you know, the, in the, in the, in the 1960s, I think it's fine because the state governments were corruptly protecting racists and essentially terrorists from justice. And that is someplace where the federal government probably has a need to su- intervene. But when OJ Simpson got off for murder and then the, there was talk about the feds doing a criminal prop- prosecution of violating his ex-wife's civil rights. That feels like double jeopardy to me. That kind of thing does bother me. I should say that if you want to increase the burden on the state to demonstrate your guilt or innocence um, in a particular matter, one incredibly useful tool is ExpressVPN. So we all know how ExpressVPN protects your privacy and security online, right? But here's something you might not know. You can also use ExpressVPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. Now that so many of us are stuck at home, it's only a matter of time until you run out of stuff to watch on Netflix. But now you can use ExpressVPN to binge Doctor Who on the UK version of Netflix. It's so simple to do. You just fire up the ExpressVPN app, change your location to the UK, Refresh Netflix, and bada-bing, that's it. ExpressVPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from almost 100 different countries, so just think about all the Netflix libraries you can go through. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service, Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but the reason you should use ExpressVPN to watch shows is it is ridiculously fast. There's never any buffering or lag, and you can stream in HD no problem. ExpressVPN is also compatible with all your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. So you can watch what you want on a personal device or on the big screen, wherever you are. So if you visit the special link right now at expressvpn.com slash remnant, not dingo, remnant, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show, watch what you want, and protect yourself with ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com slash remnant. We thank ExpressVPN for sponsoring today's edition, and the last edition of the Remnant Podcast. Charlie, you're actually a big fan of ExpressVPN, right? I am a big fan of ExpressVPN. I use it all the time. Um, And not just for the entirely joking 
reasons about skirting the law, but because it's a useful product for all sorts of different ways. No, well, actually, uh, it's one of the things that uh, I do at NR uh, with with our own podcast is is check how they are working from various parts of the country. And mm-hmm. one one of the uh, one of the advantages of ExpressVPN is that you can see the internet as if you were in Miami or Los Angeles or Salt Lake City or oh, Austin or whatever, and and thereby without without boring your listeners, essentially m- most big services they don't just have one server in one place; they're spread mm-hmm. out on edge servers. Uh, and if you want to know how those edge servers are serving people in different places, then you uh, can use a VPN to look at it from there because essentially you're creating a tunnel from your computer to wherever it is you're going. So some people right. use VPNs for for privacy. That's a good use for them, but they're also useful just as, as a geographic simulator. Uh, we should get to one of our very few recent, or one of our very few public points of disagreement. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Um, and I and I actually have a second one because I don't know if you wrote the editorial on the Kavanaugh Biden stuff, but I I felt the spirit of Charlie Cook wafting off of it at times. And I have some issues there. Um, But so your contention was, uh, I'll let you put in your own words, but basically that when it came that the the people in the media who are rooting for, who are rooting for hydrochloroquine not to work are cynical, evil, horrible people, or at least they're being cynical and horrible and evil. And I agree with that. But you also took the position, which I just disagree with, that all Trump was guilty of was being hopeful. Do I have that right? Yeah, I think that the sin that Trump committed uh, was being imprecise, overzealous, inappropriate, uh, unpresidential, in latching on, stupidly it should be said, to one potential treatment and repeating over and over again that it may turn out to be a panacea. And I think that the sin that the media and some within our politics committed was to hope that the panacea that Trump had identified and was championing would not work. Mm-hmm. And I think as, as sins, they are not remotely equal. So, stated thusly, I have no huge problems with that but i will i will i will pick my bones of contention i do want to say up front that one of the reasons why i was grateful for this exchange on twitter um where you and guy basically took the position that guy benson just took the position that you stated and i disagreed with you um i heard from a bunch of people who were like oh my god what's happened to charlie cook why is he like you know spinning for trump and all this kind of stuff and what was useful for me sort of psychologically is that, I mean, you you know my views on Trump um, and you know my views about a lot of the people who have gone through, taken the gateway drug of anti-anti-Trumpism to go into full-blown Trumpism. Um, and I know for a fact that's not you. And um, and I, in a couple different DMs and emails, I had to tell people, no, look, uh, you know, I disagree with Charlie about how he's framed this, but there's no way he's being intellectually dishonest here. And there's no way that um, 
he is going to start running around with a MAGA hat or any of that kind of stuff. You know, it's just, it's a different interpretation of the facts, but it's good faith and all that. And what's useful for me about that is that I sometimes worry, you know, when I see some of the stuff that Brit Hume, who I really like very much and I respect very much, when I see some of the stuff that he tweets, it was like, what is going on with this guy? Because I so disagree with him. And the temptation to go after motives is very strong in our politics. And, you know, same thing with some of the stuff that Bill Bennett has done, which I just so profoundly disagree with. And so it was, but I know you better in a certain way than I know those guys. And so there was no, I, I was not worried that you had slept next to one of the extraterrestrial pea pods and <laughs> woke up, you know, body snatched. So um, that said, uh, so my problem with, you know, my, 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 my second order problem with the way you phrase things is it's very similar to a point that Ramesh made in the corner a couple weeks ago when, when Rich and Dan McLaughlin and Henry Olson and a bunch of people were blaming Trump's dropping the ball on impeachment, right? This was like another way of saying it was wrong to impeach Trump because it distracted him from the coronavirus, and I get the argument, but the one of the problems I have with those kinds of arguments is they tend to treat Trump, as Ramesh put it, as an independent variable. That he, his value and his behavior has been priced in, and therefore any negative reactions to his behavior um, fall entirely on the media or the whoever's or the Democrats or whoever or people like me, whoever's reacting negatively to Trump, they're at fault because we know this about Trump. It's Aesopian. He's the scorpion. We're all frogs. We're all to blame. And I would love a little bit more dynamic scoring here. Trump does things that a rational person should be able to anticipate will set off bad reactions from people. Those bad reactions are not wholly independent about what he does. He wasn't merely hopeful about pushing hydrochloroquine. He, in collusion with a bunch of his sort of media praetorians, were, was, was all but promising that this thing was going to be some sort of cure-all. And we saw huge spikes in prescriptions for it, that had downstream consequences. Um, and I think it was bad for him politically uh, to boot. But but everyone, the, the, the argument that I, I lose a lot of patience with is, you know he's your crazy uncle at Thanksgiving. Why are you setting him off? So I, I would have two thoughts. The, the first one is I'd go a lot further with you on the criticism of that argument about impeachment. It seems to me that if the argument is that Trump is to be distracted by impeachment to the point at which he can't do his job, then he shouldn't be president. And right. also that given that presidents have difficult jobs, uh, that there is always something happening, that crises are ubiquitous, uh, you can't really make that argument without saying that you think that nobody should ever be impeached. And if, if a president, by merely being impeached, is unable to do his job, and if his job is imperative, 
then we can't impeach our presidents. And if we can't impeach our presidents, then Congress has no power and we live in a dictatorship. So I, I've found that argument ridiculous, as I, I think I said on the editors when it came up. On the second point, I do think this is a, a, a slight difference in worldview. Uh, and, and thank you for what you said about uh, my integrity. Um, I have advanced the it's their only words argument uh, that that I did on Twitter in every context since I started writing about politics. And I'm not going to stop. I know you don't expect me to, but people DMing you might. I'm not going to stop because Trump is president. Uh, I took a lot of flack six years ago, I think it was seven years ago, for defending the Southern Poverty Law Center, which I loathe from the charge that it was responsible for the acts of the man who shot up the Family Research Council. I also routinely defended Black Lives Matter speakers who had made incendiary comments about killing police officers and who were then blamed when activists who were sympathetic toward Black Lives Matter went and killed police officers. I may be wrong about this, uh, but... As a rule, I do not think that we should take the words of people who speak in public all the way up to the president and judge them according to what they might do to people who are either intractably moronic or evil. I think that yeah. I think that when we start to do that, what we do is self-censor. And I don't think that that self-censorship is applied equally. That's not to say that I like what Trump said. I, I, I just said to you, it was overly effusive and stupid and unpresidential. But I think that on the scale of sins, it ranks pretty low and that you cannot add to the charges the reactions of people on the fringes in a country of 330 million. Okay, so a couple things. One, I, as I said, as you restated your position, I lost some of my first order disagreements with you on it. That said, um, um, I still think you're wrong in this sense. He is not some Black Lives Matter activist. He is not um, even a senator who are, who's expected to bloviate. Um, he's the president of the United States and operating in the middle of a crisis, right? I mean, it's sort of like uh, his, his claim that he was talking about, you know, the UV light enemas or whatever that was supposed to be. Uh, he was just being sarcastic, right? Which no one, well, that's a no lie. One believes. Yeah. It's just a lie. Right. Um, but if you, if you take him at his word, what he is saying is that at a moment when over 50,000 people are dead and the economy is being thrown into a great depression, his re his, his, his instinct was to be convolutedly sarcastic while he's trying to you know, guide the country through a crisis. 
those words have consequences that other people words uh, other people's words don't. I think right? that's where we disagree, though. They have consequences in the sense that I hear them and believe, as I have believed since before he was even the Republican nominee, that he is unfit for office. I continue to believe that he's unfit for office. I'm not sure they have consequences in the way that, or at least on the same scale as most actions do. I mean, I hope I'm not digressing away here, but I was appalled by what Trump said about having absolute power, for example. I think that that was a, a terrible thing to say. I think it was at odds with our system of government. I don't want to hear it from a president. Uh, I certainly don't want to hear it from anyone who's taken an oath. If you compare that, though, to actually doing something about it, which presidents have, I think it pales. I think it is awful. I think it is bad for our political culture. I think it tells us something about the man and his ignorance. But if you were to say to me, which is worse, Donald Trump saying that he has absolute power and he's in charge of everything and then forgetting about it the next day, which he does, or pretty much anything that Woodrow Wilson or Franklin Roosevelt did in asserting power actual power backed up by men with bayonets i don't think it's even close and i see this hydrochloroquine question in much the same way and you you remember jonah i came on your podcast probably two years ago when donald trump was trying to circumvent congress and take the money for his wall mm -hmm. and i was apoplectic about it i didn't just go on your podcast at the time i went on every podcast i went on every tv show I wrote about it at length. I tweeted about it. I remember it you on The thing. View talking about it. That was a wild <laughs> episode. <laughs> but I was livid. I was absolutely livid. Uh, my position is not the words don't matter. My position is that if we, as Bill Buckley used to write, have a limited tank of outrage, the way in which we express as a media culture that outrage just seems to me to be massively out of whack. And when it comes to hydrochloroquine, these are words, uh, this is a clinical question, it's a question of external reality, it's an objective question, it's a, uh, it's a medical question, and uh, the fact that the president proved once again that he's unfit for office is important, uh, but compared to so many of the other things that are going on, and so many of the other things that Trump has done, that deserve condemnation. It's just not that uh, big a deal. And yeah, so, I, I, okay, I, 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 let's take hydrochloroquine out of the equation for a second. Because um, I think part of the problem here is that, I, and I'm largely with you on the, you hold people accountable for their actions, not their words. I'd certainly agree with you that it's better that Trump likes to talk like a dictator than act like a dictator. All of that I agree with. But we're both political analysts, one stripe or another. We both follow politics. When the head of the executive branch uses words to communicate something that are then responded to by the head of the legislative branch or the head of the FBI or, um, or the host of Meet the Press or whatever, that is how we talk about people doing politics to but, a large But is extent. it, I mean, this is, this is, I suppose, is what I'm getting at. My aim, as I assume yours is, 
is to limit the power of the executive branch, to restore Congress, and to limit overall the power of the federal government in relation to the states and individuals. That's what I want to see happen. I also have personal political preferences. But my primary structural aim is to effect that change. And then in the courts, it's to return to uh, an originalist and textualist understanding of the law and the constitution. I think it is entirely reasonable to be far more bothered by Donald Trump's trying to steal money that should be uh, appropriated by Congress than by his riffing about how he has absolute power. And I think it is far, far, far more alarming that Barack Obama said, I'm not a dictator, I'm not an emperor, I'm not a king, and then did the thing that he said he couldn't do to the cheers of many in the press and in his own party than it is that Donald Trump did the opposite, which is to say, I am a dictator with absolute power, and then next day he forgot about it and watched Tiger King or whatever. Again, I'm not defending it. I don't think Trump should be president. I don't think he's fit for office. I don't think he should talk like that. I was involved in our editorial condemning him for it. I'm happy to do it anytime, any place. The man is a menace, uh, and he he damaged our civic understanding and our civic culture with those lines. But it just gets quite annoying having to sit and condemn the idle musings of somebody who has the attention span of a toddler while the last president who actually did the things that he said he can't do. This isn't some theory. You can watch the video of him telling a crowd earnestly, I can't do what you want me to do. I'm not an emperor. And then deciding to do it anyway. I have a limited tank of outrage because I'm genuinely interested in reducing presidential power, not at getting at Donald Trump. Uh, or for that matter, uh, at Barack Obama, the idea that you know National Review opposed Obama for this reason or that reason rather than because of his policies was absurd. If Barack Obama had woken up on this first day of his second term and said, you know, I've been reading a lot about conservatism. I've decided I, I am one now. You think we would have condemned that? Of course we wouldn't. No, I agree with that. I mean, look, I, and I, agree. Look, I, I, I take your point. Um, I, and I share with you, I mean, I, I can't tell you that can't tell you how many times I've ranted on this podcast or in print about Obama um, by, on his own terms violating his oath of office. And I've said plenty of times that I thought that was impeachable. Um, it's worse, right? I mean, I mean, the, the, the comparison points have to be action. You know, Obama said in 2008 in the Boston Globe that any what he called kinetic actions, grotesque euphemism, had to be approved by Congress. Then he led an invasion of Libya without Congress. That is equivalent to Trump bombing Syria without Congress. Barack Obama said he couldn't do immigration reform, specifically DACA, on his own because he's not an emperor. Then he did it. That is equivalent to Trump trying to steal money from the Treasury without congressional approval. Those things deserve us to walk around with picket signs. They deserve our, our, our opprobrium and our anger and our enthusiasm. Words that are not acted upon are bad and deserve condemnation, but compared to actually doing it, not a huge amount. And the, the the double standard here is really annoying, not on a partisan basis, but in terms of actually getting something done, that being reducing presidential power. I mean, all of the people who are so angry uh, with Trump for saying what he said and should have been, won't care when this happens in a Biden administration 
and and worse still, many of them had been making the assumption that Trump <laughs> vocalized in their questions to him for weeks. No, look, I, I, look, I agree with that. It is amazing. I mean, like, you know, uh, Donald Trump's understanding of his authority jibes almost perfectly with, say, Chris Matthews' understanding of Obama's authority, right? I mean, they, they, the, the problem is they just don't like Trump, right? And we, and which is one of the reasons why I, I would rather, I mean, I wrote a column about this very early in the Trump administration about the reflowering of progressives loving federalism, which happens every time there's a Republican in office. Right. You know, when, when a Republican's in office and people talk about federalism, oh, you mean you want to bring back slavery and Jim Crow. But right. when a Democrats, you know, whenever... When, when uh, Republicans in office, all of a sudden, uh, the left says, oh, there, there's this really interesting idea. For the right, it means this evil stuff. But, you know, maybe California should secede and all of these kinds of things. Which, by the way, um, is not federalism. <laughs> no, of course it's not. I know. But I would rather have buy-in from a lot of people on the progressive side that says, okay, now do you see what we were talking about? Then just go after them on the double standard stuff. Um, yeah, but and, just to defend myself, I, I don't think I do. I'm not. I'm not. I, no. I, 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 that's fair. But I, when I hear you talk about the Obama thing, I, I share your outrage about Obama. Obama's gone. We only have one president at a time, and I think that the as you even alluded to, some of the things that that Trump says are going to give have given Democrats all sorts of of permission to do terrible things down the road. And it makes our job of criticizing them more difficult I as totally a result, agree even with if they're that. just And words. that's why they should be condemned. But I don't think that speaking and acting are the same thing. Uh, no, I don't either. But I think speaking from the President of the United States has more import and significance than you do. I think. I think you do, yeah. But I, I, I think I'm, I'm trying to explain why when Trump actually did something, which was to steal money, that he wasn't as the executive uh, allowed to take, which he knew, by the way, because he kept negotiating with the Democrats. And then when they said no for the last time, he said, oh, I'll take it anyway. Right. Um, when he did that, I lost my mind. Because this, because it's about the worst thing you can do as a president. And when he said what he said, I was annoyed by it, but it was a ratio of about one to ten. Okay, so uh, we don't have that much time left, and I want to get to one last thing on this issue of double standards. Um, at the dispatch, we linked to the editorial. We thought it was a great editorial. Uh, you have a line in there, or the NR has a line in there. I'm not ascribing authorship. Um, that says, as a matter of law, and I'm quoting from memory, as a matter of law and culture, uh, due process must be afforded to everyone or afforded to no one, right? So my first problem with that is, while I agree with you in principle, in reality, we know that that's not the case. And it would be better to live in a society where we the occasional... Um, lapses or failures to live up to our ideals occurred than to throw away the ideals entirely. Um, and the reason I bring this up is that I, I, I truly have one of the great liberating things of, of, of truly being out of the, um, 
rah-rah side, I'm not saying you are, but just of the sort of serving as a political consultant for a party as a pundit kind of game, um, is I really don't have an ideal outcome here. But I find the argument about Biden and the sexual harassment allegations or the sexual assault allegations um, and the constant name-checking of the Kavanaugh stuff confusing. I am with you entirely. I was with you entirely about how outrageous it was, how outrageous the media's behavior towards Kavanaugh was, how outrageous the Democrats' behavior towards Kavanaugh was. I thought it was grotesque. But if, but at times, particularly if you listen to the Trump campaign, um, you would be, you, you would not be far off. You would not be all that much in error for thinking that the argument is. The real scandal here is that the media isn't being as grotesquely irresponsible to Biden as it was no, to that, Kavanaugh. That's not that's not the argument at all. Also, the the line that you quoted was part of a sentence that argued that if the due process uh, and presumption of innocence standards are applied on a protean basis only to one side, then the principles will die and they will die because people won't believe that they are a core component of a fabric they will think that they're just weapons just tools in much the same way as many people on the far left view free speech sure. as some sort of plot by the wealthy or well-connected or popular or majority i I I don't I don't know how you get to that position, the one you just outlined. The okay. certainly I would have no interest whatsoever in doing to Joe Biden what was done to Kavanaugh. I think I've been clear about this. I want to extend to him the principle and the habit that Kavanaugh was denied. I don't think though that we can just ignore the double standard. Because if we do, then we will have set a precedent in which conservative nominees are treated one way and non-conservative nominees are treated another. So I would like two things to happen. The first is for the press to acknowledge that it behaved monstrously during the Kavanaugh nomination that it printed bizarre, self-evident nonsense uh, without criticism. CNN, I believe, had Michael Avenatti on for 30 minutes out of the whole day when he was heralding the accusation that Brett Kavanaugh had been involved in a teenage gang rape ring. I'd like some acknowledgement that that was outrageous. I would like to see Dean Baquette do more than just mumble when asked what the differences are. I would like the people who were self-righteous and indignant to accept that they were full of it. And if none of that self-awareness comes to pass, I would like the rest of us to acknowledge going forward that the press writ large is dead 
or that it deserves to be held in um, no esteem whatsoever. The second thing I would like is for Joe Biden to be forced. It doesn't matter to me who does this, his wife, his party, the press, his church, I don't care, to be forced to reconcile his own view of sexual assault and uh, presumption of innocence with what he is being accused of. Uh, he has spent years adopting the I believe you standard. He said that in 2017 explicitly. Uh, he said in 2018 when Kavanaugh was under the spotlight that women should be reflexively believed. His changes to Title IX were all predicated upon the idea that the definition of sexual assault needed to be expanded and the uh, chance for the accused to represent themselves needed to be constricted. Why? Why is he not being asked what has changed? Why have we now had weeks and weeks of interviews with him and no questions asked directly? Why does he get to speak through his campaign manager? Whatever you think of Brett Kavanaugh, he went, in his own words, in his own voice, on the record over and over and over again. He sat down on Fox and professed his innocence. He went before the Senate and professed his innocence. He released press release after press release, insisting that he was innocent. I think that this is a moment in which people quite rightly want to see some consistency. And that consistency is not, as you suggest, the crucifixion of Joe Biden or the unfair treatment of Joe Biden, the abandonment of due process, the abandonment of presumption of innocence. It's not the reflexive belief in what women allege irrespective of evidence, it's an acknowledgement that if this is the correct way to treat Joe Biden and his accuser, then the press got it spectacularly wrong last time and should apologize. And Joe Biden's last decade of public life has been stained by an egregious mistake. Okay, so I have almost... No substantive disagreement with any of that. I think Joe Biden should be asked all of those questions. I think, look, I, I personally think that there are a bunch of people who should have been fired, um, including Jane Mayer and a lot of those people uh, in the Kavanaugh coverage. Agree with all of that. Here's what I'm trying to get at is that as, you know, maybe it has partly to do with the fact that I, I, I spent a big chunk of my career doing liberal media bias, media criticism, dunking. I was a was media critic for Brill's content. I used to do it for the American Enterprise Magazine. I did it for National Review for years. It is not a new revelation to either of us that the mainstream media, what we call the mainstream media, sucks and is biased and is dishonest. And the Kavanaugh thing, we didn't need the Kavanaugh thing 
to demonstrate that for us. We knew that already. And, um, but it, it shocks me the degree to which so many conservatives today will do this thing where you, you know, Trump does, does something bad and then someone says, oh yeah, well, what about what the New York Times did? As if these things are apples to apples. I, I think that's an absolutely fair argument. I think it's a digression from this, though, because this quite literally is apples to apples. Well, oh no, I mean, Kavanaugh is not a presidential candidate. No, but, right? but all mean, of the arguments that were made in favor of putting Brett Kavanaugh under the spotlight and treating him as he was treated obtain here. The argument was that he was seeking public office and would have power over people. The argument yeah. was that he was... Uh, engaged in a job interview. The argument was that the mere fact of the accusation would stain him and leave a cloud over him, which would be unacceptable given that he would have such an important job to do within the federal government. The argument was that uh, women needed to know that their complaints would be vindicated when leveled against powerful men. There's nothing different here. And if anything, it's worse. It's worse. Okay, but, but, you know, uh, a big chunk of the stuff that you're talking about is what you said earlier has has very little actual consequence, which are just words, right? Biden said many dumb things. I'm not defending Biden. No, but they're but not just words. Biden manifestly changed. I know he's done on Title IX. Yeah, I, I know I people that. who have been railroaded by the process that Joe Biden put in place. Now he wants to be president of the United States. I understand. My point is that if you, if you want to do the actual apple to apples comparison, it's Joe Biden to Donald Trump. And Donald Trump has vastly more credible accusations of sexual assault against him with equal or greater corroboration than the one against Joe Biden. Yeah. And the, the point here is not to say that therefore Trump should be impeached or therefore Biden is unfit for office, although I am fine with all those kinds of arguments if someone wants to make them. My only point here is, is that if what is exactly in, in the context of the presidential campaign, the argument we hear is not that what Biden is alleged to have done is, is all that terrible. Certainly no one from the Trump campaign is making that case. What they're making the case for is that the media needs to do more like what it did to Kavanaugh or more like what it did to Trump to Biden. And there's an argument for that. I mean, I think your point about the questions that Biden has to answer is entirely valid. But it is a way in which but arguments that, about media criticism and media bias are crowding out and turning into a, sort of a vast riot of whataboutism um, that is distracting from the underlying thing. It used to be that conservatives, I spent an enormous amount of time at the beginning of my career talking about how allegations of, about Bill Clinton were disqualifying for office, right, or that they were truly outrageous. I had the same view about Donald Trump's actions. I had the same view about Joe Biden's actions. No one really wants to talk about that part of the equation. Well, hold on. I don't have the same view of Joe Biden's actions because I don't know if they're true. Well, if they're true, right? Fair enough. Fair I, enough. I certainly have the same view of Donald Trump's. I don't know whether the accusations that swirl around the edges are true, and I can't know that. I, I do know that the the tape that came out in the summer of 2016 is real, and I said at the time that he should drop out. I, I think what you're describing is a real phenomenon. I don't think that it has a great deal to do with me. The, oh, I'm not saying it does necessarily. Yeah, I'm just, the, you know. My, my objection here is to the way in which 
two men who both professed their innocence have been treated. And what that says about how seriously we take this. Um, and, 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 and whether the supposed change in attitudes around this is, is real. Okay, and, let, and me, I think let me, let me take moment, it out of because I, I think everyone understands where you both come down on the media question. And I agree with you about how they treated Kavanaugh. But it's not, just the, it's not just one thing on that. It's not just the media. The media has, has a, 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 a role to play in this. But I watched U.S. senators during late 2018 for weeks. I watched Mazi Hirono and... Uh, Cory Booker. Who may be the dumbest and, senator, we have to be fair. Sure, yeah. but... So and, you, you have to grade on a curve. Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren and Sheldon Whitehouse. Uh, I, I watched all of them. I watched their rhetoric. Uh, I listened to their approach. And it's gone. Uh, now, the, the, the typical response here is, well, what about Trump? But I agree with that criticism. <laughs> I mean, no, I agree. That's, that's <laughs> you're sort of my point, right? I mean, so... I want to, that's why I want to take it out of of this context and and get you a little off the off defensive, which I didn't mean to put you on. Um, although I do want to point out that Maisie Hirono, I saw her say it in real time that you could tell that the accusations that he's a rapist right. are true because of the way he rules from the bench. Which, in a more just society, out of nowhere, maybe the Benny Hill music a pack of Wolverines would have carried her off camera. Um, but anyway, uh, let me put it this way. Um, um, during the Biden, not sorry, during the Ukraine scandal, you would ha- I would have this conversation with people, particularly in the Fox green room, where they would say, look, what, what, what Trump is accused of is what Biden actually did in terms of China and whatever, all that stuff, and or Ukraine. And, um, and I would say it's really not, but let's assume it is. Is what Biden did really bad? And they would say, absolutely. And then you would say, okay, well, if Trump did it too, would that be bad? They're like, oh, no, that's ridiculous. This is all made up. It's a hoax, right? If you look at the polling on something like free trade, more Democrats are pro-free trade than at any time in American history, in the last 40 years, I shouldn't say in American history, and more Republicans are anti-free trade than any time in the last 40 years. And it's all because of this sort of negative polarization reaction to Donald Trump. Um, there is this tendency in order to ding the other side for its hypocrisy to end up internalizing the other side's standards as your own because that's the only way you can weaponize them. And as someone who has given up on the Republican Party to a large extent, I'd still like to see them win the Senate or hold on to the Senate, but, uh, who, but who still cares pretty passionately about conservatism and the health of conservatism, this really concerns me. And that's what I'm trying to get at with this stuff, with the, with the Biden stuff, is that everything becomes so meta that you end up arguing about who the other side, how the other side is a hypocrite without recognizing that for you to make the charge of hypocrisy, you have to become a hypocrite too. So I agree with all of that, but I have one caveat. Suppose that Biden had done exactly the same thing as Donald Trump, just as your thought experiment. Mm -hmm. 
a question that would arise would be, should Trump be impeached if Biden wasn't? And my answer to that would be yes. I think Ramesh wrote, wrote persuasively about this. You've got to judge it on its own. Right. Just because someone else got away with murder doesn't Correct. mean that the next murder you encounter... Now, I had my own different views on impeachment, but, but if, if you have identical offenses and you think that those offenses are impeachable, the fact that someone else got away with it should not let the other guy off the hook. That's a standard that I agree with and I believe in. But I have one caveat, Jonah, and that's that it is unsustainable if over 30, 40, 50 years, only one side gets impeached. Because after a while, people will say, well, yeah, I'm totally happy to look at this on the merits. I'm totally happy to examine the evidence and treat this in a vacuum. But the other side doesn't do that. They just wave it away. So we lose all our presidents and they lose none of theirs. Now, that doesn't work as an analogy in this case. It's a hypothetical. In the Biden case, it does. That's why people are so angry about this. Because this is Calvin Ball and we can all see it. All of those answers given by Dean Baquet, is that how you say it? Baquet? Baquet. I think so. I don't know. All of those answers were nonsense. They were absolute, unmitigated, unalloyed nonsense. They were straight up justification of a double standard that included an admission that the peace had been changed because the Biden campaign had complained about it. Complained about a part, it should be said, that is uncontroversial. It is a fact that Donald, uh, that, that Joe Biden has touched people in a way that's made them uncomfortable. Even if there was no intent, even if you don't think that rises to any sort of standard, that is a fact. It was removed. And I think people look at it and say, hey, I believe in treating people fairly and I believe in due process. But if it is only ever applied to one side of the aisle, to people of a certain persuasion, then it's, it's unsustainable. And I think that's what the editorial was getting at when it said that if you don't apply it to everyone equally, it will fade away. It will wither on the vine. And that will be an absolute disaster because whether it should be or not, once you extrapolate this out over 40, 50 years, people will not stick to principles that they should stick to if they are only hurting them. And no, I, I agree with that. And, and this is sort of what I'm trying to get at is, you know, I've been ranting about this for a while, about the, the, the riot of Alinsky envy on the right where there's this notion, which I'm partly responsible for, that Alinsky had this huge impact on the left. And, and, and in my defense, as I often say, I was talking about how terrible Alinsky was, not how, what a great you know, best practices model he was for conservatives. But you have um, you know, people on the, you know, uh, it was that guy who lost his mind, wrote you know, rules, he had the pseudonym, uh, rules for radical conservatives or whatever, uh, Michael, but anyway, it doesn't matter. You have these people who have embraced Alinskyism yeah. as an actual mode. You have people like Michael Anton who wrote, you know, that um, in a debate with me back in the days when he was still hiding under a pseudonym that um, the days of colorblindness are over. Therefore we need our own identity politics. And this, 
there's this strange thing in our culture where both sides, both the left and the right, tend to think that the other side wins every fight. And when you think the other side wins every fight, which is just flatly wrong, yeah. you think, okay, well, how do they do it? We have to be like them. And you get this from the left about the right. I mean, the left has been talking, you know, when think tanks were going well for the right, they were like, oh, we need our new think tanks. And without acknowledging the fact that the only reason why the right set up the think tanks is because they got kicked out of all the universities. You know, this, this, this envy of the other side's imagined power rather than their actual power is incredibly distorting. And that's one of the things that really worries me about I, what's happening on the right. I, I agree. I just want to clarify that. I'm making a slightly different argument there, which is that although I will be with you up until the last breath fighting against, say, white identity politics, I will nevertheless assume that if identity politics becomes even greater a force on the left, that white identity politics will become inevitable. And what I'm oh, saying, that. what I'm that's, saying that's is, my, I will be out there, of identity politics. right. I will be out there till the last, saying we need to consider the evidence. Uh, Tara Reid has presented against Joe Biden. Uh, and if it's not sufficient that he should be regarded as innocent, I also accept <laughs> that if we get more Kavanaugh's and more Biden's, and if they are in a sharp relief as these two are, that a lot of people are not going to take that view. And they're just going to say, you know what, screw it. I've, I've tuned out. And at that point, what you've done is you've really, really hurt female accusers, ultimately. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Because no one is going to listen to them anymore. Because if it's a Democrat, the assumption will be, well, they must be lying because we don't listen to those. And if it's a Republican, half the country will say, oh, I don't have to listen to what that person says because they don't. Right. So I, it's more of a normative fear of what will happen than... Uh, you know, a promise to change my own behavior. Now, the, the the problem with Trump, as you've written a lot, is for a lot of people, he has become an excuse to change their own behavior, and they have changed their own behavior, and they've essentially become corrupted because what they do is all the things that they hate just in, you know, in, in a mirror. Um, that's not what I'm arguing for at all. I'm saying that unless we see Joe Biden accept that his stance has been wrong and that due process and presumption of innocence are important. And unless we see some acknowledgement from the media that the way they behaved toward Kavanaugh was outrageous and that there really is not any great difference between these two cases, um, then you're going to see people switch off. And and I think that would be sad and dangerous. Yeah, I, I agree with that entirely. I mean, I, I think one of the reasons why we got Trump was the way the Tea Parties were outrageously called racist when they weren't. Mm -hmm. And um, at some point, you get this sort of psychic break where you say, Screw it. We did everything. You know, obviously there were some freaks and weirdos on the fringes, but for the most part, Tea Parties did it exactly the way you would dream, almost oxymoronically for a populist movement to do it. And they were still called racists and they were still called fascists and they were still called. And at some point you're just like, ah, screw it. You can't beat them. It's the Chicago way then. And yeah. that's what, that's, that is what, you know, if you're looking for a through line of the stuff that I'm trying to, fight against it's that you know there are other arguments about michael flynn and all these kind of things got plenty of people on i'm still trying to do this thing about saving conservatism because if you don't save conservatism or classical liberalism then the country really is screwed i mean i i agree with that absolutely 
All right, Charlie, we've run long and I still have to do like write a column and um, use the jaws of life to get my spaniel out of an alligator, no doubt. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's great to see you here and we're going to see each other in person tomorrow. Absolutely. So I'm looking forward to that. Just let me and, know uh, the details. Please um, give all of my best to all my friends and former family at, at NR. Um, I may not, my column may be winding down over there, but uh, um, it's still near and dear to my heart and always will be. That's good to hear. I'm in. All right. Okay, so Charlie has left my computer screen, and um, I'm looking forward to seeing him uh, in the swamplands that we are in. Um, uh, you know, if you get a chance to uh, visit the dispatch, go to thedispatch.com and, and sign up, become, um, a, you know, a paid member. We really appreciate it. Uh, we've seen a huge spike in subscriptions um, or memberships in the last uh, few weeks. I think a lot of people are staying home and as they're turning away from a lot of the more clickbaity stuff, they're looking for um, news that they can trust and perspectives that they think are um intended to illuminate rather than just make people angry. Um, I guess I could do a little better on that sometimes, but uh, we really love your support. And if everybody who listened, if everybody who regularly listened to the remnant, you know, signed up for a monthly or a yearly uh, forget lifetime uh, membership tomorrow, uh, it would just be such a game changer. It would allow us to hire more people Um you know, we decided not to take these PPP funds because we thought it was the right thing to do for us. We don't begrudge people who did it um, for their reasons, but uh, we think our model is the right model, but it depends on support from folks like you. Um, other than that, uh, if you guys could leave comments about the podcast at the remnant um, page at the dispatch, that would be very useful. Um, we love the five-star reviews. We have over 4,100, I think, five-star reviews at iTunes. That's great. That's really appreciated. Um, but uh, it helps for us to see what people really think, particularly our core audience. Think if you can leave comments, if you have comments at the Remnant page at the Dispatch. Also, if you do it on Twitter, um, particularly if you have nice things to say, um, I might be more inclined to, to retweet you. Um, it's good to see what people are thinking, and it's, it helps us with the marketing of all of this. And other than that, uh, just really appreciate the support. I hope everybody's staying safe, and I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. 
refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.